Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Amen. May the Lord add His precious blessing to the reading of this word this morning. Brethren, having spent three messages considering the vitally important subject of repentance... We want to stop this morning for uh, something of an extended footnote. Uh, we haven't finished our studies in repentance yet, but uh, I trust that you will see that the very flow of this passage leads us to take up a vitally important subject this morning, which, of course, goes hand in hand with the preaching of repentance we need to ask ourselves a crucial question. If Jesus said, Repent ye, and believe the gospel, what is the gospel? And one would think at first glance, this is an absurd question. If one professes to be a Christian, Surely he has some idea of what the gospel is. But brethren, the longer I live, 
the more I see that that simply is not true in our society. It is astounding what passes for the gospel in people's minds. I will never forget one of the jobs that I had shortly after my conversion. I was working with a young woman who would see me from time to time at my lunch break, reading in the, the scriptures. She came in very excited one day and said, Oh, I've been going to a Bible study. And I said, Oh, well, that's wonderful. Having seen her demeanor and heard her talk, I thought she had never been to church. And uh, she told me, Oh, yes, I've, oh, I've, I've been in church all of my life. And I said, Oh, well, that's interesting. I said, uh, <clears throat> What are you studying at your, at your Bible study? She was so enthused. It was kind of infectious. I always like to see someone excited about studying the scriptures. And uh, she said, well, we're, uh, we're studying the Bible. And I said, hmm, well, would you, would you tell me, what, what's the gospel? Lifelong church member, enthused about a Bible study, and she looked at me with a uh, kind of a blank stare like, this is a trick question. There was no trick question to it. What's the gospel? What's the message? And she, she sat for a minute and she said, Oh, I know what you're talking about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I said, well, that's close. They wrote Gospels. But what's the content? What is it? And she couldn't tell me. And brethren, I've had that experience over and over in one form or another. This is not an obscure part of the Christian faith. This is not some tiny part of Christianity that's kind of hid in the corner that, that mean, wicked-minded pastors kind of like to pull out and trick people with once in a while. Friend, where you sit this morning, do you have any earthly idea of why a sinner is right with God? And can you tell someone else? Can you articulate it? Many can't. And yet they still cling to some hope of heaven. But then this is not attempting to squeeze everybody into a very finely cut theological argument. Do you have the foggiest notion of why God should bring you, allow someone like you, into heaven? with Him for eternity? Now that's the question. Why? Multitudes profess to be followers of Christ today who are apparently strangers to this thing we call the Gospel. And yet, brethren, on the very testimony 
of God's Word, you are not a Christian unless you believe the Gospel. And you can't believe the Gospel unless you understand it. It's not a feeling. It's not, well, I went to a meeting and I felt warm all over and so now I know I'm a believer. Many who boast of a hope of heaven cannot sit down and explain to you in a few sentences or define the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this morning, God willing, we want to take up a very natural flow in Mark's thought as we examine what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Please notice in verse 14, after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ was doing something. It's called preaching. And there was content to what He preached. And part of what He said in His various times of doing this activity is summarized for us in verse 15. And saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now that's the title of our message this morning. We looked at repent ye a few weeks back. Then we looked at repent ye and believe. And now this morning... We want to see, repent ye and believe the gospel. God willing, we want to unfold this under three heads. First, the definition of the word gospel. Secondly, the content of the gospel. And then thirdly, the meaning of preaching the gospel. Now, brethren, I'm going to enter into some controversial waters this morning. Not because I have any relish to do so. But because men's souls hang in the balance. Brethren, for several weeks, I've had parents bring children to me and, and say, I'm, I'm encouraged, I think my children may be saved, or that the Lord is doing a work in them. And of course, this is the prayer of all of us here. We want to see all of you children safely folded in the arms of Christ. We want to see all of you truly to be Christians and serving Him in His great kingdom. But if you don't know what the gospel is, you are not yet a Christian. A Christian is someone who believes what Christ said and taught. So we want to understand something about this idea of the gospel. 
Jesus intended for the nation of Israel to repent and to believe something. Believing is not an emotional exercise. It is an intellectual exercise. It is using your mind to process information. And it is understanding that information and believing it. So, God being our helper, let's take up the definition of the word gospel. In ancient Greek, the word translated gospel originally meant the reward received by a messenger of victory. And the messenger's announcement of triumph brought relief to his hearers. And therefore they gave him a reward. Now this same idea is found in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 10 says... <clears throat> When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. Man came to King David. Saul who was David's enemy, had been slain in battle. And of course, when there's a war, a titanic battle struggle going on, and one side triumphs and the enemy is destroyed, that's usually in the minds of the victors, good news, glad tidings. So this man came to David, convinced that he had good News for David. Your enemy Saul is dead. And he thought he'd get a little reward for bringing those glad tidings. And that's the way the word was initially used in Greek. And we see that very idea here in the Hebrew Old Testament. But this notion, however, eventually changed from the emphasis on the reward for bringing the good tidings to the message itself. Uh, as you know, words evolve and word usage very often leads to uh, different understanding of a word over time. And this word moved away from the idea of a reward for bringing glad tidings to simply the good news itself. The Hebrew verb that is translated tell or announce good tidings is also found in the Old Testament and it regularly refers to God's triumph over the world and His great reign. The notion of moving from the idea of reward for the message to the message itself 
begins to become prominent in Hebrew scripture. And the idea is a messenger bringing a great message. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 embodies this. It says, How beautiful are the upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publishes, publisheth peace. <clears throat> that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. You see that? Here we have the emphasis shifting to both the messenger and the power of his message. No thought here of reward for the message. The focal point is a messenger whose mouth is filled with a glorious message of victory. Thy God reigneth. That's the deliverance. That's the salvation. And that's good news. Those are glad tidings. God's word of victory is in the mouth of the messenger. Now this is exemplified in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. This is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And do you notice something here? There's a messenger and there is a message. The message is good news. Jesus Christ took this very passage and He applied it to Himself in the book of Luke chapter 4. Following His baptism, the anointing, the Spirit of God coming upon Him. This is why He is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Following His baptism, His anointing with the Holy Ghost, and His triumph over Satan's temptations, it tells us that being filled with the Holy Ghost, He went into the synagogue to read. And they gave Him the book of the prophet Isaiah was a scroll and he rolled it open until he found the place and this is what he says the spirit of the Lord is present tense upon me because he hath anointed me 
anointed him to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. Part of the glorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ in saving his people is his wonderful work as a prophet. He is the only mediator between God and men. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he is the anointed one of God to bring God's words. I will put my words in his mouth, Deuteronomy says. And whoever will hear him, of course we know, is blessed. But it tells us that whoever will not hear him will be cut off. Jesus Christ didn't come simply to perform some miracles that overawed people. He came as a messenger. And he brought a message. And the word is specific. He is Messiah. He is Christ. He is the anointed of God. He has the Spirit of God without measure in order to bring good news. He's to he came to preach the gospel. And Mark sets that before us in his prologue. Jesus came preaching the gospel. He came preaching words. So as a herald, He came publicly proclaiming God's sacred message. So then, the word gospel means good news. It means glad tidings. It is God's holy message of deliverance and victory. But don't miss the point. It's a message. You have to process the information. And you have to believe it. Or you are not a Christian. You may have reams of experiences. But Christians believe the gospel. So what is the content of the message? We want to take that on next. And brethren, it's not quite as easy as it sounds. Mark, as we've pointed out, begins this wonderful gospel of his... <clears throat> In verse 1, saying, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then what follows? Sixteen chapters. You go to John, you look at his remarkable gospel, his blessed work. He has 21 chapters. And yet, what does he say? In chapter 20, verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning what? The 20 chapters, 
prior to that, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Now our nature is, come on, sum it up, get to the point. What I want to say to you is that God gave us Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And what, what are those literary entities called? Gospels. Why? Because they're the good news. They are the glad tidings. So we have a very broad understanding of the gospel on one hand, and yet there are certain key truths that must always be in what we call gospel preaching. And it is that that we want to try to consider this morning. There are at least four things that the gospel is. The gospel is the message from heaven concerning what God has done to save sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not pressing people for a decision. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel regardless of the results. Whether people believe or whether they reject what you say, evangelizing is not based on the results. Evangelizing is properly bringing God's message unchanged, unmodified, and declaring it to sinners. Now, if you're not doing that, whatever else your activity is, it's not evangelism. Four things to consider. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that this is even a perfect summary. Of course, I'm not going to do anything perfectly anyway. But these things are clear. Number one, the gospel is a biblical and historical message about God. Number two, the gospel is a biblical and historical message about men and their sin. Number three, the gospel is a biblical and historical message about Jesus Christ. And fourthly, the gospel is a biblical and historical summons to repentance and faith. Now, I challenge all of you, all of you, from the, the youngest child that can read to the rest of you, take your Bibles and read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them 
all the way through, and then read Acts. And you will discover something extraordinary. The gospel is never a canned message as such. We're going to talk a little more about that in a few minutes. And what I mean that mean by that is that it's not just one, two, three facts now, as long as you're sure you've got these facts, some gospel preaching has happened. But there are certain things that are included in gospel preaching that must always be there. Something else we need to realize, and it's very difficult for us in our day, because our idea of evangelism is so unbiblical. The idea of evangelizing very often is just somebody going out on the street and preaching at the top of his lungs, hoping that someone will just repent. I'm not opposed to street preaching. Don't misunderstand me. It isn't simply going and passing someone a tract, though it may be a good gospel tract. But it is instructing people in the message. Evangelizing is purposeful instructing people of God's message for the purpose of seeing conversion. And brethren, very often that doesn't happen in an instant. We've been trained to immediate, explosive, emotional so-called conversions. I'm not saying they don't happen. But I'm saying if you read the Scriptures carefully, over and over... You'll see Paul doing the work of an evangelist, staying in a place for a year, a year and a half, over and over and over, instructing, declaring the evangel, the gospel. And he brought these truths to bear over and over for the purpose of seeing sinners converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that may not happen in just in a, in a, an emotional instant. So the first thing we want to tell people is about God. The gospel is a biblical and historical message about God. The gospel is a revelation of the living God set forth in His Holy Scriptures. It is taught in the Old Testament in types and shadows, and it is revealed explicitly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This is a biblical revelation from God about God. When preaching to the Jews, neither Jesus nor the apostles had to inform their hearers as to whom God was. God had revealed Himself through His prophets and in the Holy Scripture. And the Jews knew that their God was the sovereign Creator that had made all things. In other words, they had a presupposition in their life about God. They knew who God was based upon the Holy Scripture. So when Jesus and later the apostles began to 
evangelize them. They didn't have to start with who God was. But they still inevitably started with God. The Jews knew that God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and gave them precious covenant promises of a land and of a seed that would one day be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So in Acts chapter 13, when Paul spoke to the Jews in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia, he began his preaching of the gospel with God. It's a message about God. Paul said in, in verse 17 of Acts 13, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought he them out of it. He reminded them of who God is and what He had promised. He then declared that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of Messiah. He began with God. And then, having set forth something about the character of God, He told them about what God has done. You'll find this clearly in the gospel preaching of Acts. On the other hand, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the Gentiles on Mars Hill in Athens, he begins by telling them who God is. Well, that was unnecessary with the Jews. It was absolutely vital for these superstitious pagans who had statues to gods everywhere, even one called to the unknown God. Paul says, it's the unknown one that I want to talk to you about. What's clear is that you don't know the God who made the heavens and the earth. And that's where he started his gospel. And brethren, I tell you, in this society, it's far wiser, from my perspective, to approach this society, like Paul, approached the Gentiles in Acts 17. While at one time you might have said God and there would have been a general notion of what you were talking about, that is no longer the case. Even among people who sit in pews Sunday after Sunday. They don't know who God is. And you have no gospel if you don't know who God is. The gospel is a message. It is biblical and it is historical. There is revelation of who God is and what He has done. And you see this over and over again. Paul stands on Mars Hill looking at these heathen and he says, God that made the world. And all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth to all life and breath 
and all things. Brethren, right before them, he's dismantling their religion. He begins with God. Why? Because, brethren, if you don't understand something about God, Jesus' coming will never be clear to you. And if the gospel isn't clear to you, you haven't believed unto life. He says, you've got all these gods around you. You have all these statues. But you're at least honest enough to say there might be one out there that we don't know. And that's the one I want to tell you about. He's the sovereign. He made all things. He's the creator. And He's not worshipped with your hands or mine, like they did in their temples, and serving them and bringing them food and all the other practices that they took part in. He says, This God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Well, what do you know? Paul actually begins his gospel preaching by saying that God is sovereign. And that He rules over all things. Brethren, I will tell you there are many today who sit in pews Sunday after Sunday who don't know, and many of them who, who heard it and don't believe that God rules over all things. The Jews knew that. They knew He was the sovereign Creator. God's sovereignty is declared all through the Jewish Scriptures. And here Paul, speaking to these Gentiles, says, He made all things. Now, he didn't launch into a 40-minute discussion of predestination. That's not what I'm talking about. But that's clearly alluded to. He tells them who God is. Now, preaching the Gospel includes telling men who God is, what He's like, what His law requires, and what His claims upon men are. Until men see that they owe their existence to this God, until they see that He is holy, and that they are rebels against His law. Until they see that they have brought down His just condemnation upon their heads. What are you going to tell them about Jesus Christ? He came as a Savior. Men that are not damned don't need a deliverer, do they? Unless men understand these things, they'll never make sense of the gospel. They'll never really see any need for a gospel. What good news is it? There's a fellow named Jesus. He, he died on the cross for sins. Will you just believe that? 
average fellow doesn't have the Holy Spirit's analysis of his heart and his mind. He's not really that bad. His own thinking. He needs to know that he's in trouble with God. Or the gospel will never mean anything to him. The gospel is a message about God. And it is in the light of this that we then see that the gospel is a message about men and sin. Until men recognize that they are wrong with God, they will never really be concerned to be right with Him. Every brother in this I would think this is so elementary. And yet it is amazing to me how often I hear people who sit in church week after week after week after week. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 480- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom 
when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.